I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticulture Society's Gardening Podcast. Good to feel that spring is almost in the air. I'm Jenny Bowden, a member of the Garden Advisory Team. In these podcasts, we bring you the best of gardening knowledge, advice and discussion. They're made by people who love plants, for people who love plants. We're passionate about our entire natural environment in gardens and beyond and committed to protecting the plants and wildlife that are so important in our world. So, whether you're a horticultural novice or a veteran, there's something to interest everyone. Coming up later, our annual chart rundown of the top 10 pests that made gardeners' lives a misery in 2016. Can the box tree moth retain its coveted number one spot or have they lost their crown to a new menace? Stay tuned to find out. We'll also have suggestions of jobs to tackle in your garden this March. And, as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, question time. As an RHS member, you can put your gardening questions to our expert advice team for free, by phone, by post or email. Or visitors can talk to us in person in our gardens or at any of the RHS flower shows. And every month on this podcast, some of the advisors get together to discuss some of the queries we've received recently. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt, Principal Horticultural Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. Today I'm joined by a team of experts. We've got Jenny Bowden. Hello. Uh, entomologist Hayley Jones. Hello. And advisor Becky Mealy. Hello. Tracy Jones by email. I wonder if you could suggest a small tree for a small garden, preferably with fruit, nut or attractive blossom and foliage, which could tolerate encroaching honey fungus. So not many ones here. Um, but what about the honey fungus, Haley? Is that a worry? Yes. So that's it's a bit of a big ask because especially if you know you've already got honey fungus, there's very few plants that are kind of truly resistant. Uh, we have a list on the RHS website of plants that are rarely um, infected with honey fungus but you know it's hard to say that some definitely won't get it so honey fungus is a fungal pathogen it can be diagnosed by scraping away bark um, at the base or on the roots of a ill-looking tree and if you scrape away um, some bark at the base of your tree or on some of the bigger roots you can see the black 
bootstraps or the white mycelium um, of the fungus. It's a big problem because this fungus actually can kill a lot of plants um, and trees. Um, And once you've got it in your garden, there's not really any way to eradicate it. So you do have to try and plant things that are resistant, but it's hard to say they definitely won't get it. But there are quite a few nice, pretty flowering trees that are, you know, small and well behaved. I really like the hoheria. That's got a beautiful little drop white blossom that's kind of may june time and it's got a bright green foliage so it's it's, it's quite a dainty little tree stuartia's got a really attractive bark that looks like kind of like army khaki so you've got different shades of brownie and olivey kind of colors um and is an evergreen with a, again a white flower that's kind of a cup shaped but that's a, a very nice architecturally looking tree there's a couple I would look at. One of them is called uh, Talia, which is spelt with a P at the beginning. So it's P-T-E-L-E-A. And it's a small tree. Um, one I would choose is Aurea. So it's yellow foliaged and it gets to about 15 foot and it's got white scented flowers fairly early in the year. And sometimes you get them repeating a bit later on in the year as well. And um, it it is rarely, rarely attacked. As Haley said, nothing is immune, but uh, it's a very nice, un- underused small tree. And the other one uh, is, is on our sometimes attacked list, uh, which is Amelanchia. And I mention it because I've, I've got several in my garden, which my garden has honey fungus quite badly. And I find that they've survived for about 10 years now and I haven't lost one. Uh, so uh, that's another one, um, which is in the in the rose family, which is usually very much affected. So it's a bit of a so far an exception to the rule. And you've got lovely bronzy foliage in the spring. You've got white flowers in the spring, and then you've got uh, berries following the flowers, and then you've got orange autumn colour. So we've got L Harding from Newcastle. I have a question about my evergreen viburnum, which has been growing in my south-facing London garden for the last 17 to 18 years. Last year, the leaves became silvery brown. Is this a disease? I want to try and prevent it reoccurring this year. This sounds like a problem that we've really seen a lot of um, in the last year through the advisory service, um, which is thrips. Uh, This is actually glasshouse thrips, so named because they used to mainly occur under glass. Um, But in recent years, we've seen more and more of them outside, um, especially in, in warm places like London, which has a bit of a warm microclimate. Um, And yeah, so this south-facing London garden is exactly where we'd expect to see thrips. And particularly on viburnum, we don't know why, but we see an awful lot of thrips on viburnum, particularly viburnum tinus. The way that you can recognise if you've got them is the top surface of the leaf um, has a kind of a silvery sheen that develops over the growing season. And if you flip it over and look on the underside, you'll see kind of brown speckles, um, which is actually the thrips faeces. These are quite uh, interesting looking creatures. If you get a chance, look them up close, maybe under a hand lens. Uh, They're kind of narrow bodied um, and they have these thin wings that lie back along their body. The adults are kind of dark bodied with pale wings um, and the nymphs, which are the young ones, are, are much paler in colour. Now, the, the samples we've been guessing and the, the leaves look very much dead and brown as a result. Um, although, as you're saying, that when you look closely, they've got a silver sheen on them. 
But a lot of people go, well, should I prune it or not? And when you look into those, there's usually little green shoots at the base of the leaves. So yes, often a light prune to take off the worst and then allow those shoots to come through will completely allow it to green up again. But then there's, of course, there's that issue of can you keep them green this season? Is is there anything else we can do for that? The only kind of real way of getting the population of the thrips under control is to use pesticides. If you prune out the old dead bits um, and start to look at the new growth in the spring, uh, if it stays kind of green, clean and lovely, um, then don't worry too much. But as soon as you start to see signs of thrips, so um, their thrass on the underside and slight discoloration on the top surface of the leaves, um, that would be the time to spray. Um, These are soft-bodied insects, so they're quite susceptible um, to different pesticides. You can look on the RHS website um, page on thrips for a list of suitable products so we have uh, we have some correspondence from a pashi by uh, by email here uh, four years ago um, i constructed a raised vegetable bed 30 centimeters deep uh, because it's got very poor topsoil and it's on top of a limestone pavement not so good for growing vegetables he says i've added garden compost to the bed each year since however the crops were very weak and slow growing and uh, i found that the soil was full of very very fine tree roots although the nearest tree is a mature magnolia about five meters away would it be possible to line the bed with plastic sheeting or would this harm the drainage so lots of things going on there aren't there um plastic sheet well yes if there's no holes in the plastic sheet you're going to create a pond and we need to try and avoid that roots from trees do tend to go into things like compost heaps and where the soil is very good hedges also next to borders they'll seek out this fresh soil for nutrients and water and they will grow into them quite rapidly within a season or so and when you dig down you'll almost dig out a block of fibrous roots If you're cultivating that bed, which you'd expect, though, on a vegetable between crops, particularly once not so deep, it would usually break those roots. So in most cases, actually just preparing the soil between crops would be sufficient not to have to worry about them. Uh, Now, we're saying the soil is not very productive. There's usually a couple of reasons for that. Um, It's only 30 centimetres deep, which is kind of just about enough to grow in. The main risk um, from that is it's going to dry out. And that's why typically we say two foot deep would be okay. Now, um, in this case, it's on a pavement. So we know that it's literally just that depth. If you put your raised bed onto a soil border, in effect, you've got that depth of soil underneath. So don't worry if it only comes up 30 centimetres, you've got the soil beneath. In this case, it's a bit like a giant container. So we need to do as much as possible to look after that. And we need to treat it largely like a container. So watering it most days in summer to keep that soil damp. Also be a bit cautious on what you top it up with. The soil will uh, sink over time. So often we'll turn to things like multi-purpose compost to top up. It is quite light, it's quite friable, so that in itself will dry out more quickly. So if you can, use topsoil. You can get it in bags. If it's a relatively small bed, it's not so expensive to use.
So with the soil, so with feeding, um, I'd make sure that you're regularly applying a liquid feed for vegetables because um, it's easier to apply and then keep a, keep a note on a calendar actually how many times you have a, a fe- um, fed them because it's very easy to kind of think, oh, I did it two weeks ago and then actually think, no, it's, it was a month ago. With watering, it's a good idea to actually kind of make watering wells around plants so it, it actually settles around the actual plant, maybe putting plastic bottles in so the water can actually directly go to the actual roots of the actual plant and get into a habit of regularly watering and giving them good water um, so it, it holds it in rather than, you know, forgetting and then the brown actually gets too dry and the plant becomes too dried out before it can actually be rescued. The RHS Garden Advice Team. Contact details for the team can be found on the advice pages of the website. Now we turn our attention to some of the villains of the insect world. Each year, the RHS advice team compiles a chart of the pests and of the diseases that they've received most inquiries about from gardeners. This gives a useful picture of the changing patterns of the pests and diseases affecting gardeners and a record of the emergence and spread of new pests into the UK. The results from 2016 have just been published, so let's join entomologist Hayley Jones to find out what's been bugging most in 2016. We've just released the top 10 pest inquiries from 2016. Um, There's a lot of familiar faces on there and a couple that are more unexpected as well. Back in the number one spot is slugs and snails. They were knocked off last year by the box tree moth. Um, Prior to that, I think it had been eight of the last 10 years they'd been number one and now they're back at number one. So not very surprising there. It was quite a, a warm and wet year last year. So we would expect slugs and snails to do pretty well in those kinds of conditions. Some of the other um, pests that were bugging gardeners last year is the vine weevil, which is always a problem, um, where the adults can eat the foliage above ground and the larvae can eat the roots underground. They can really pose a problem for garden plants. There was also the fuchsia gall mite, which had jumped up quite a few spaces compared to the previous year, Um, and the glasshouse thrips, which was also a bit unexpected to see so high up in the top 10. Slugs and snails, they're, they're often at the number one spot, even though we, you know, they've been around for years, there's tons of control methods out there, but they're still really persistent and one of the problems that gardeners seem to constantly struggle against. And I think part of this is because there's so many control measures available, such as different barriers like um, copper, uh, gravel and things like that. And there's also slug pellets and nematodes as pesticides and biological controls. Um, but some of the treatments that are available out there there isn't much research behind them so at the RHS we have actually launched a scheme of research to investigate some of these controls so hopefully over the next few years we'll have some more definitive answers about which controlled measures will work and which won't work. Of the control measures that are out there the ones that currently have the most evidence for working well are the slug pellets both metaldehyde and ferric phosphate which is certified organic Um, but both of those should really be used with care and should always follow the manufacturer's instructions and also the nematode biocontrol. These nematodes are microscopic worms that you mix with water and water into the soil and they infect the slugs and snails underground. For vine weevils, even though it's the adults that make the really visible damage above ground with the leaf notching, it's always the larvae that you should try and treat to keep them under control. And the best time to do this is kind of in late summer to early autumn. For plants in pots, you can 
remove them from the pot and get rid of as many larvae as possible by hand. And you can also use uh, an acetamiprid drench, which is a type of pesticide that you water into the compost. The other option is a nematode treatment, which is the only thing that you could use in the open ground. And again, this is best to apply um, in late August, early September, when the ground is still warm enough for the nematodes to move around. So you water them into the soil and they'll seek out the vine weevil grubs and infect them. And third in our chart is the fuchsia gall mite. This featured in the top 10 last year, but it's jumped up quite a few places. This is a relatively new arrival in the UK, um, and it does seem to be spreading quite a lot. Um, it's a gall mite, which are tiny um, arachnid type creatures, um, and they form galls. So the growing tips of the fuchsia become very curled and distorted um, and don't grow into beautiful flowers like you'd want. The, the problem with these is because they are gall mites, um, there's very few things that you can do to treat them. They are protected inside the plant material from anything you can apply. So what we would recommend is that you cut your plants back all the way to the ground if you think you have an infestation of this gall mite. And then in the subsequent year, hopefully it will grow back clean. But if not, you might have to destroy the plants to prevent the spread of the mite even further. Okay, so we spent quite a lot of time talking about things that we don't want in our gardens, uh, but maybe you can also start to think about encouraging some animals into your garden, such as butterflies. Look on our website to find some pages about encouraging butterflies into the garden, where you'll find lists of plants such as buddleia and honeysuckle that will attract the butterflies in and also be lovely for you to look at. You can find out more details of the top 10 pests and diseases in previous years and advice on how to treat and prevent damage to your plants. With spring just around the corner, there are even more events and attractions for you and your whole family to enjoy at our four RHS gardens. Here's a taste of what's on offer in coming weeks. A spring showcase exhibition of seasonal images from the Lindley Library will be on display at RHS Garden Harlow Carr in the library from the 6th of March to the 30th of April and that's free to all visitors. A health and wellbeing weekend for a happier and healthier you will be taking place at RHS Garden Hyde Hall on the 18th and 19th of March. Again, that's free to all visitors. The 21st of March is a free Tuesday at all our RHS gardens, where everyone can visit for free to enjoy our beautiful spring displays, our cafes, gift shops and plant centres. Why not make a date in your diary now to visit an RHS garden near you? The Wisley Spring Fair will take place on the 24th to the 26th of March at RHS Garden Wisley, giving visitors access to many specialist nurseries with their inspirational displays of quality plants and nursery owners will be on hand to help you with your plant selection. Full details of all events and many more are on our RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. And of course, a visit to one of the four RHS gardens is a day out in itself, especially at this time of year when the garden is bursting into life. Here at Wisley, things like uh, ornamental cherries are looking absolutely fantastic. Camellias just beginning to come into their own. For me, the mimosas are absolutely a herald of spring. I love that Mediterranean touch. The scent of the mimosas coming across the Mediterranean borders is absolutely perfect. So do come along and have a look at those. The garden teams work hard to keep beds and borders looking fantastic and the plants performing at their best throughout the year. 
Let's go outside and hear about some of the key jobs they're tackling right now. Hello, I'm Gemma, the formal team leader. We currently are standing at the base of Top Terrace, at the top of Conifer Lawn, admiring all the beautiful purple and mauve and white crocuses that are emerging in their thousands. At the moment, the formal team are busy rose pruning and mulching the rose garden. Uh, This is a great time of year to, um, in your own garden, clear your beds, uh, prune your roses and uh, put some uh, food down uh, like a slow release fertilizer around the base of your roses and then cover it with mulch and this will really um, set them up for the rest of the growing season. We're also working on jobs such as cleaning all of our water features. Uh, we're quite lucky in the formal section we've got a varied selection of water features so we've got a natural running pool set of pools on the Thompson and we've got a formal uh, dish shaped feature in the cottage garden. It's good to give them an annual clean uh, in your own garden if you've got smaller water features it's good to give them a good clean and get rid of any leaves that have fallen in them over autumn and uh, make sure they're all running properly. In terms of other cleaning we're also focusing on our paths so Paths can often get slippery over winter with moss and liverwort and um, fallen leaves on them. They can go a bit green, so we're giving them a nice spring clean. We use a path cleaning machine with just a small amount of water. In your own garden, you can use path cleaning brushes or you can use a power washer. They're really effective. Um, You don't need to use chemicals or anything, other products. Uh, Water works really well. It's a really satisfying job and a nice clean path really shows off the plants as well. In the mixed borders at Wisley and in the cottage garden we unfortunately have some bindweed. So at this time of year we're lifting all the plants, um, cleaning off the roots and digging out as many bindweed roots as we can find. So we dig a trench and um, work on that area removing roots and then fill it up again and and keep moving on. So it's a good time to do this before the plants start growing. You can lift perennial plants and some small shrubs, clean off the roots and then replant them. This is a really good way of managing bindweed if it happens to be a problem in your garden. We're also finishing off pruning our wisterias. We've got some lovely standard wisterias around the canal area and um, up through the Thompson. So they were pruned in summer back to six buds and then at this time of year in sort of late winter, early spring, they need to be pruned back to three buds. And this combination of double pruning will encourage lots of lovely flowers later on in the summer. We're also doing a bit of planting, so if the weather permits and it's not too frosty and the ground's uh, not frozen, we're getting some plants in, so um, we're looking at getting new shrubs planted. Uh, We're also uh, planting some herbaceous perennials, um, just getting ready for early summer. As always, you can find more information about most gardening topics on the advice pages of our website, plus informative photos, plant guides and video guides to key seasonal jobs. Well, that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all here at Wisley, goodbye.
walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 